You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, well, thanks for letting me get away for a couple weeks. See if we remember how to do this. (laughs) All bets are off this morning. Okay, so as much as our current moment in history is not very conducive to the Christian faith, uh, one undeniable thing about our time is that people crave meaning. No matter who they are, people want to know that their life matters, that what we live for matters. An example of this is found in the workplace. Uh, Unlike prior generations, research shows that today people do not prioritize earnings and achievement and success as much as they do fulfillment and purpose and meaning. Many would agree that the key to life is really figuring out what matters most and then building your life upon that. But I think very few would agree about what that key to life really is. What it means to live a life of ultimate meaning. What truly matters? What brings true life? And how do we get there? Listen to the words of D.L. Moody. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Or in the words of Jesus, what does it profit a man if he gains the entire world, but in the process, he forfeits his soul? 
What if you wake up one day and you realize that everything that you built your life on was meaningless? That in the long run, every step forward that you believed was a step forward in success and progress was just another incremental forfeit of your soul and your eternity. According to Jesus, this is what is at stake. This passage here in Mark speaks to really the pressing and always relevant issue of meaning and purpose. But it does so in some really odd ways. And we have to acknowledge that. It says some really odd things, like that you gain through losing. And that the fulfillment that you are looking for is actually found through the self-denial that you are often resisting. And ultimately, the way to life, the life that we long for most, is through losing it. So we look at this portion of Mark. What I want us to do is I want us to consider four things from this passage. First, the question. The question that Jesus asks his disciples. Secondly, the message that Mark tells us he begins to teach. Third, the call that he gives to the crowd. And then finally, the promise. And this, this is a promise that stands true for us today. So let's consider first this question. Look with me once again in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, just a little bit of historic background here. Caesarea Philippi was a Roman-occupied city at Israel's most northern border. And it was a major city built by Herod Philip in honor of Caesar Augustus. Hence, Caesarea Philippi. And it was known as being a place of worship. It had this large shrine to the emperor himself. And so along with these, this temple dedicated to Caesar, there was this big rock cliff face, and carved into it was a number of temples dedicated to Caesar and Zeus and Pan and Nemesis, you name it. It was essentially a shopping mall of pagan worship. And it's significant that Jesus brings his disciples here, with this backdrop, this is a long journey to preach a sermon. But it's this backdrop behind him with all of the false gods, with all of the false notions of authority and power, with all of the false notions of truth, with all the false notions about what life is truly all about. And it's here that he asks them the question. Look with me, continuing on in verse 27. And on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Like today, there were a lot of different ideas about who Jesus was. Oh, he's a revolutionary. Or he's a good moral teacher. Or he's a wise sage. And so his disciples, they respond. Well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Others are saying that you're Elijah. What are they saying? Essentially, here's the key. People think that you're a prophet. Just like major religions today Jesus, yeah, he's a significant guy. He's a prophet. But at its core, the statement is that Jesus is simply the mouthpiece of God, not necessarily God himself. And so it's interesting that they're standing here in front of these many temples, and it's as if Jesus is asking, am I just another God to the Greeks? Or am I just another power figure to the Romans? Or am I just another prophet to the Jews? Or am I just another fill-in-the-blank to you? Am I just another little addition to your long list of things that you run to for meaning and help? 
Tip Keller tells of a time when he was a youth and he heard uh, from a woman named Barbara Boyd an idea that changed the way that he thought about Jesus forever. And she shared with this youth group uh, that the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. And she said, say that distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a sheet of paper. She said, then, if that's the distance between the sun and the earth, then the distance between earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers stacked 70 feet tall. And the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy, as we know, is just a little spot and speck in a vast universe. And so she turns to this youth group and she asks, if the Bible tells us that Jesus upholds the entire universe by the word of his power, that Jesus is the one that holds it all together, is this the sort of person that you ask into your life to be your assistant? In other words, is he just another addition to your life? This is what I think Jesus is asking. Do you think I'm just another addition into what's going on around here? Then he takes the question a step further. Look with me in verse 29, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? I love this. Jesus is like, yeah, 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 that's what they're saying. How about you? What say you? See, this question, who do you say that I am, it's both personal and it's challenging. It's personal. Jesus refuses to allow the question of his identity to remain in the realm of theoretical Theoretical Christianity is no Christianity at all. It's personal. It's a question that we need to wrestle with. It's a question that you must wrestle with. And note that this question about the identity of Jesus Christ comes before the call to follow him. I think this is important and on purpose. Because if we are not captivated by who Jesus is and his worth and all that he has accomplished for us and on behalf of humanity, then we are not going to follow him into sacrifice. And we are not going to follow him into this strange call to lose ourselves and to deny ourselves and ultimately die. That's not going to make sense. I believe this is why the question precedes the difficult call to come. Why? Because our belief dictates our behavior. What we believe is determining what we are living out What we believe to be true of Jesus will determine whether or not we follow him. Which means my job as a pastor is not to just simply present to you the call of Christianity. My ultimate job is to present to you the Christ of Christianity. Look to him. And I can truly, I truly believe that Until we're able to answer the question, who is Christ, we will not be able to stand in front of the mirror and answer the question, who am I? Too many of us are standing in front of that mirror every single day asking, who am I? Who am I? When the bigger question is, who is Christ? Now we answer is of utmost importance. As Tozer put it, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion 
has ever been greater than its idea of God. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most important question before us reality is who is Christ? Who do you say that I am? It's personal, but it's also challenging. That's a challenging question. See, today we think uh, of coming to faith as a process of us asking questions of God as if he's on the stand. That if we ask enough questions, we get, you know, the, the kind of answers that we want. When we are finally convinced, then we'll follow. But if I'm reading this right, I think we've gotten it backwards. Because if there's anyone that's to be called into question, it's us. If there's anyone that should be receiving the questions, it's us. Faith is not the process through questioning of us determining Jesus' worth. That's there whether we exist or not. That's there whether we ask the right questions or not. Faith is not determined upon us asking the right questions. Faith is the process of Jesus' unchanging identity confronting us and challenging our ideas of the world and challenging our ideas about ourselves and our understanding of how things work and all of our false notions about life. If you are beyond being questioned, then you are beyond Christianity. Don't question my life. Don't question my behavior. Don't question my beliefs. I got news for you. Jesus asks the questions. And Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? See, I told you it was challenging. Peter answers in verse 29, well, you are the Christ. What does that mean? Some loaded language. What Peter's announcing is that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the long-anticipated, anointed, liberating king of Israel. And as he makes the announcement, you are the Christ, what the announcement is also is you are just not, you're not just another moral figure. You're not just another teacher. You're not just some sage. You're not just some example. You're not just some mouthpiece for God. You're not just another fill in the blank. You are the son of the living God. You are the hope of the world. You are the Christ. But look at me, verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now that's, that burst immediately follows Peter's announcement. I find that strange. Imagine this scenario. One of our Sunday school teachers is asking one of our kids a very important question about God. And they raise their hand and they nail it. And the Sunday school teacher turns to them and says, okay, I never want to hear you say that ever again. The kid's like... Okay, He doesn't just charge them. He strictly charges them. Right, Peter? Now shut your mouth. (laughs) Now, I don't understand exactly all the dynamics of what's going on here and why Jesus would say this immediately during one of the most significant reveals and revelations of his identity and character throughout the book of, of Mark. But... What I do know is that this would have been understood as a statement not just about Jesus and his kingdom, but it would have been understood as a statement about what the emperor and the empire was not. This little, 
statement, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is Lord, is an extremely subversive message. The confession, this is the confession of the Christian faith, that Jesus is Lord means, in the first century, and it means in the 21st century, that the emperor and the empire just got demoted. Okay? That there's a king, and this is the true king, and to him alone, we owe our allegiance. And if this would have gotten out, this would have sparked a political revolution. What we have to understand about this time was there was hundreds of years of this of revolution just brewing and bubbling over from time to time. People were waiting for their guy to come. And so if this news would have gotten out that Jesus is the Christ, it would have sparked political revolution. It would have catapulted Jesus immediately to the throne. In fact, in John, John records that they literally tried to drag him by force and crown him. But clearly this was not the plan. We come to find out shortly that Jesus was not interested in a political revolution. He was definitely not interested in a path of self-promotion. This revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ is not a beeline to the throne. This revelation about the identity of Jesus Christ is now setting in motion a beeline to the cross. Which leads us to our second point, the message. The message. Now, as we've mentioned previously, Mark is a cohesive story. We take it chunk by chunk, but we need to remember this as a story and a story on the go and a story typically told all in one standing or sitting. It's a cohesive story telling the story of Jesus. And where we find ourselves today, Mark 8 is literally, and in the narrative, the center point, the sort of turning point of the narrative. What we've read so far throughout almost every chapter that we've covered is that Jesus has been teaching. He's teaching from the boat. He's teaching from the shore. Uh, he's teaching in uh, Israel's territory. He's teaching outside of Israel's territory. He's teaching in parables. He's teaching plainly. He's teaching. He's teaching. He's teaching. But there's a change in his teaching. Listen to the words of Mark, chapter, uh, verse 31. And he began. Now, that's a weird word to put here since he's been teaching all along. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. So Jesus' true identity and his plan are being revealed. And as he identifies himself as the Son of Man, this had a huge meaning. This would have sparked something in the minds of this Jewish audience. It likely would have brought them back to the teachings and the writings of the prophet Daniel, where we read of a Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, that the clouds of heaven, there came one like, the, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what Jesus is saying is he likens himself to the son of man. He's acknowledging that he is the king, but this is a new development that if we put all the pieces together, we see. But Jesus is saying now explicitly, what he's telling them is Jesus is not just another king, and he's not just the king. 
what he's making really clear is that the Son of Man is a suffering king. The Son of Man is a sacrificial king. And ultimately, the Son of Man is a crucified king. And so here we see Jesus is giving his disciples a very clear and detailed description of the way that he's going to reign as king. It's not going to be with a crown of gold. As we read later in Mark, it's going to be with a crown of thorns. That truly, he is going to reign in victory. Jesus reigns in victory over the powers of evil. Jesus reigns in victory over the devastation of our sin. Jesus reigns in victory even over death itself. But it would come. In fact, Jesus says it must come at the cost of his life. This king would reign not first from a throne, but from a cross. And to understand Christianity and understand the entire New Testament, this is so vital that we grasp. He would lay down his life in seeming defeat, but thanks be to God, he would rise on the third day in victory. Sacrifice is what brings his royal victory, what Jesus is saying here. It's through sacrifice. It's through seeming defeat. It's through the cross. And here Jesus is describing his self-giving love. Now, this was the last thing that would have been on the minds of the disciples. But if we pause for just a moment and we consider this, this story, what Jesus is alluding to here, begins to resonate with us. And what we begin to realize is that every good story crescendos at the point of self-giving love. Every good story leads up to that point where someone lays down his or her life and their rights and their whatever for the sake of others. A love that is driven towards sacrifice. The pinnacle of love. The pinnacle of victory. Now, as much as this is the Messiah that uh, Peter has proclaimed, this is now beginning to look nothing like the Messiah that Peter had anticipated. Look in the verses 32 through 33. And Peter took him aside. <laughs> Side note, just, just don't do that. You don't, you don't ever need to take Jesus aside. Or rebuke him. And he began to rebuke him. Goodness, okay. But... Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, Jesus gets the last word, and he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How is that? For making the first explicit proclamation of the Christian faith, then immediately being called Satan. <laughs> Peter got it so right when it came to proclaiming Jesus, he got it so wrong in his application. This is key. We need to pay attention to this. Because what this means for us today, this shows us that we can confess Christ accurately in all of our doctrine statements, and yet simultaneously be modeling Satan in our practices. At the very same time. How? What Jesus seems to be saying here is that when men and women of God are setting their minds on the things of man, the way of ease, the way of refusing to sacrifice, the avoidance of self-denial, this then will be a very clear sign that the devil has gained influence amongst the body. How do we know that Satan is at work? Well, don't look for flames and 
pitchforks and red tails. Look for a refusal to sacrifice. Look for a refusal to walk the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross. Jesus ministers a costly grace. Satan ministers a cheap grace. Well, think about this. If we go all the way back to the beginning of Mark, which you know, Matthew picks up on some more of the details, the, 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 the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, what's at the core of Jesus' temptation? Is it bread? No. It's, I will give you the crown without the cross. You can have all of the glory and dominion of all the nations, and I am going to give it to you without any suffering. But Jesus is saying to Peter, and I think he's saying to us, reality, a crossless Christianity is a satanic Christianity. It's not just missing the mark. It is working for the other team. A Christianity that claims Christ but refuses to acknowledge the cost of his path is demonic, and we need to repent of it. See the question? We see the message. Third, let's look at the call. Verses 30, uh, let's look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, pause, if anyone... What an inclusive welcome. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me with exclusive terms. Inclusive welcome, exclusive terms. Friend, there's only one way to follow Jesus. In total dedication. You gotta give me your life. You you gotta give it all. So there's a threefold uh, call here. First, Jesus says, deny yourself. Now think about that statement, deny yourself. What a counter-cultural message. I guarantee you that no one is jumping on their phone and tweeting that message. Deny yourself. Let's let that one go viral today. The message of our day is not a message of self-denial, it's self-fulfillment. Do what makes you happy. Do what brings a sense of fulfillment. It doesn't matter if it's right. What matters is if it's right to you. You do you. Say yes to you. But listen to these words. If you are going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. So here's our goal. This is the vision. If you're a believer, this is the vision for your life. This is what God has called you to set out for for the rest of your waking life. You must deny yourself. Deny ourselves of what is not honoring to God. Denying ourselves of what is selfish. In light of the gospel of God's grace, denying ourselves of what is self-reliant and self-helping. This is the commitment that we are making together. This is the call of Christians and no qualifiers. No like, but but, but, if anyone. So I want to share a story. I I remember a a conversation I had with a friend some time ago. 
and it was specifically about sexuality and about our commitment to be a community that is extending an invitation particularly to all people, but particularly to the gay community to follow Christ and what it would entail to follow Christ for those who experience same-sex attraction. And I remember saying, what it's going to entail, it's going to mean self-denial. To follow Jesus is going to mean denying what may feel right or feel natural for what God declares is true. But, I said this is the commitment and the commitment of the church that comes to all of us. That we, the community of believers, will make the very same commitment no matter where we find ourselves in life. To deny ourselves alongside our brothers and sisters. To deny ourselves of what may feel right for what God declares is true. Whether that's in the area of sex, whether that's in the area of money, whether that's in the area of pleasure or power, fill in the blank. No qualifiers. This is our mutual commitment to deny ourselves. And I told this friend, it would be an act of spiritual abuse to you or any other individual to say that you are to deny yourself more than the rest of us. You listening? To say because you have this in your life, you really need to deny yourself while the rest of us kind of deny ourselves. At its core, that is spiritual abuse and demonic. And so I told my friend, I commit to call every man and woman to the path of following Jesus regardless of their story and to walk that path with you. So here's me carrying that out. Hear the words of Jesus. If anyone is to come after me, let them deny themselves. Secondly, Jesus says, take up your cross. Now here's the logical progression here. Since Jesus is a king with a cross to follow this king, and to, to therefore be in this king's kingdom means and requires that we carry a cross as well. There would have been no shred of doubt about what Jesus was getting at when he calls his disciples to carry the cross. The cross was a very well-known, highly shameful symbol of death. The Roman crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. And we think of the cross as specifically a punishment for wrongdoing, and it was a punishment for wrongdoing, and it was extremely excruciating, extremely painful. But the primary purpose of the cross was not punishment of the individual, but it was a deterrent for anyone who would ever think twice about following that individual. It was a symbol of power. That you can do what you think you need to do, but at the end of the day, you will die for it. And I find it interesting that Jesus takes that symbol of Roman power and he literally turns it on its head. And he says, no, this is not the way to death. This is the way to life. And what was intended to deter you from following me will be the means through which you follow me. 
Here's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You've got to die too. I hope they told you that. Goodness. I hope I'm not the first one telling you that today. You've got to die too. To follow Jesus into breakthrough and victory means to follow him to Calvary. There is no resurrection life that Christians are talking about all the time without the crucified life. It's a cross before the crown. It's suffering before glory. Listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end of an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Isn't it interesting that that is the message that set ablaze the world? Hey, I've got, I, I, I've got great news. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a way that we can die together. <laughs> I'm in. Lastly, he says, follow me. Mark begins this portion of the narrative uh, with a repeating phrase. Mark is uh, a genius storyteller. And so there's a phrase that appears in this portion that's now going to repeat, and it's signaling something for us. It begins in verse 27, and Mark says, on the way. Now, it's a short little phrase that we uh, probably overlooked, but the question is, on the way where? And what Mark is signaling is that Jesus has begun the final leg of his journey. It's a journey that's going to lead him right up to Jerusalem on the week of Passover, right up the hill of Calvary, Golgotha, where he will lay down his life as the atonement for our lives as he dies for the liberation from our sin and ultimately entry into true and eternal life. The early church, before Christians were called Christians, the early church was actually called the way. Followers of the way. And here's what Jesus is saying. This call, the call to be a true disciple, the call on the way to follow him is to join him on the way to the cross. We see the question, we see the message, we see the call. Let's look finally at the promise. Now, there's a children's story that my wife read to our kids a couple years back uh, called The Princess and the Goblin. And the story's about a young girl named Irene, and she's visited by her fairy godmother who gives her a ring with a thread that's attached to it. And she ex explains that as Irene holds uh, that ring, <clears throat> the fairy godmother will, will hold the ball of thread on the other end. But there's a challenge as the girl comes to find out that she can't see the thread. And so the fairy godmother explains that the thread is so fine you can't see it. You can only feel it. And so the godmother explains that if the girl ever found herself in danger, she must simply just put on the ring, feel the thread, and follow it where it led her. But she has a little caveat. She explains that as she follows the thread, it's inevitably going to lead in what seems to be the wrong direction. But she tells the girl, don't doubt the thread. Just keep following. And shortly after she faces threat of scary goblins, they, they break into 
the house and she finds herself in danger. And so remembering the words of her fairy godmother, she puts on the ring and she begins to follow the thread, thinking it's going to lead her to safety. But to her dismay, it actually leads her straight into the midst of danger. Leads her right into the cave of the goblins. Surely this can't be the way she thinks to herself. Surely this, this, this doesn't feel right. This is not the easy route. And she comes into the cave. She reaches a dead end. She is completely stuck. So she thinks to herself, as the narrator writes, the thought struck her that at least she could follow the thread backwards and thus get out. But the instant she tried to feel it backwards, it vanished from her touch. She remembered the words of her fairy godmother, follow the thread forward. She begins to remove the stones that are in front of her, which became a very painful, bloody process. And she breaks through this wall. She discovers the voice of another character named Curdy, trapped on the other side. And she breaks through. He says, all right, now let's go back the way that you came in. But to his dismay, she says, no, I must follow the thread forward, whatever I do. He's not understanding what's going on. So Curdy says, what do you mean? This, this, is, this, this is the way you came in is the way that we get out. And she responds, you will see when we get out of here. Sure enough, as we follow it forward, this is the way that will lead to escape. And sure enough, it's the way that leads to escape as they follow the thread forward. And th th that's the message to us today. That you will see soon enough that the way that seems difficult, the way that seems so counterintuitive, so dangerous, so illogical, and at times for some of us, even unnatural, is the way that leads to life. And there are going to be moments where it does not make sense. I can guarantee you a large portion of us today are just sitting in there thinking, Christianity is just not making a lot of sense right now for me. And the immediate payoff is not going to be forthcoming. But as Irene told her friend, wait, and you will soon see. See, it's very easy to look at this portion of Mark that we're looking at this morning and think simply about the cost that's associated with discipleship. The cost of discipleship. And while it is present, and we can't wiggle out of it, there is a cost. There's a cost to being a Christian. But the point is this, it's not the emphasis. The emphasis of Jesus' words here are not loss. The emphasis of Jesus' words here is gain. That we give up in order to gain more. And if we miss this, I think we're going to miss it entirely. And here's the promise that comes straight from the word and from the mouth of Jesus, not just to his disciples, but to us today. Hear the words of the beloved speaking to you. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Promise number one. Try to grasp it, and it will slip through your fingers. Promise number two. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Eugene Peterson translated it like this. This will be the way of finding yourself, your true self. I think for many of us, we spend much of our lives lived on that path of self-fulfillment and self-discovery. At the end of the day, that's what we're just trying to figure out who we are and determine why we are here on this earth. 
And yet, the more that we try to self-fulfill and the more we try to determine who we are, the, the more insecure that we become. And here, I believe this is why. It's because we haven't actually dared to lose it yet. Why are we so insecure about who we are? Why are we so insecure about our purpose and our meaning in life? Because we haven't dared to lose it. Jesus offers us this promise that if we, by faith, offer ourselves to Christ, then we will live truly alive. That if we let go in faith, we will receive back in greater proportions in Christ. That the hope of the Christian faith is that for those who share in the sufferings of Christ now, will ultimately share in the exaltation of Christ and glory later. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So I got to ask you the same question I began with. What if you woke up one day and you realized that everything that you've been building your life on was meaningless? This is ultimately what's at stake. It's what Christ is calling us to do, is to invest ourselves and invest our lives and invest our everything in what truly matters and what is truly eternal. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.